0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing if you're able for the reading of God's Word. We'll read the 18 verses of Exodus chapter 31. Exodus 31. And we see the sermon title is Covenant Blessings, Work and Rest. Work and Rest. Let's give our attention then to the of God's Word, Exodus chapter 31. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed him with Aholiab, the son of Ah 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 Ahisamach, of the tribe of Den, and I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Lord, speak now to us all that is necessary for our instruction. Disciple us, Lord God, in your word. Teach us your ways that we might love you, we might know you, we might trust and honor you in all that we say and do. Lord, give us your spirit now. Our need is absolute. Without you, we can do nothing. And so speak to us, Lord God. Speak to us and open our ears, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're coming to the end of the long section in the book of Exodus about the instructions on the making of the tabernacle. And, and with that in mind, our Lord now presents kind of as the capstone of this long series of instruction, the capstone. He, he presents to them two blessed covenant realities, realities which speak of salvation realities which have direct impact upon the tabernacle itself and upon the people's relationship with the Lord. Those realities are work and rest, work and rest. Uh, And the work and rest that we read of in this passage are not according to Israel's imagination or design. Rather, they are both work and rest provided and prescribed provided and prescribed the lord provides them and then he prescribes them what they should look like the work and the rest that's to say for israel to enjoy the blessings of the tabernacle that is the dwelling place of god in their midst israel needed both work and rest prescribed and provided to them and it's the Lord that did that it's the Lord that provided it's the Lord that delineated what this work and rest should look like and I want to say friends the realities are in principle the same for us As we serve God and as we rest in Christ, especially on this, the Lord's Day, the day of rest, we do not rest or work according to our own desires, our own imaginations. It's not left up to us. God has told us how we are to serve him in our labors and work, and God has told us how we are to rest in him, peculiarly on the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day. In other words, we work and rest in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. We live, we serve, we worship and rest according to the revealed will of God. And that's what's put before Israel this day. They were to work and rest on the Sabbath according to the revealed will of God. And we see that really in two sections in the text. Pretty obviously, if you've got a study Bible with headings, verses 1 to 11, we see that God equips his people for work. God equips his people for work. And then in verse 12 to the end of the chapter, God provides for his people rest. God is providing and prescribing work and rest for the covenant people, specifically with reference to the tabernacle, with reference to the tabernacle. And as we talk about work and rest in the tabernacle, our minds automatically ought to go straight to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the very fulfillment of the tabernacle concept in scripture. More of that in a moment. Firstly, God equips his people for work, We're at the end of a long section in the book of Exodus. All the myriad of instructions about what the tabernacle is to look like, how it is to function, the ordaining of priests. Now we come to the human builders of the tabernacle. What is both explicit and implicit in this text, as we come to this long sec- end of this long section, is this, God is supremely in control. God is supremely in control. When it comes to Israel's approach to God in worship and through sacrifice, God is supremely in control. <coughs> Excuse me, it is God who determines, it is God who designs, it is by God's appointment and determination how Israel should approach him in worship. Very, very important. Very important. And that has direct application to us because we're reminded from this text and all the previous texts we've studied on the tabernacle The repeated refrain, God is holy and we are not. God is holy and we natively are not holy. Therefore, we must approach God through the appointed ways and means. We must approach him through the ways that he has determined. You see, worship that is acceptable to God is not some sort of subjective outpouring of the human heart. Rather, it's an activity of the heart shaped by faith done in accordance to the revealed will of God. If you want an example of worship that is not acceptable to God, turn the page in your Bible and look at the golden calf incident. Worship if it is to be acceptable to God, must of course be done by faith, thereby connecting us with Christ the mediator, and it must be done according to God's revealed will. That's very clear in our text as we come to the appointment of Bezalel to do the artwork of the tabernacle. And Oholiab, and the able men in the building of the paraphernalia of the tabernacle. That's the first 11 verses. God calling and equipping men to build the tabernacle. And there are three principles, three areas of concern I want to derive from the text tonight. We're talking about the building of the tabernacle. What is the tabernacle? It is the dwelling place of God with Israel. The dwelling place of God with Israel, where he dwelt in the midst of his people and they could come to him to make sacrifice and to worship as part of that relationship. The tabernacle idea, friends, is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. So everything we say about the tabernacle, everything we say about its design, about its labor and the day of rest, ultimately will lead us to something about the person and work of our saviour. Three principles we see being laid before us in the text. The first is this, God is appointing work for his people. God appoints work for his people. Secondly, not only does he give instructions about how the tabernacle is to look and to be made, he then tells them also who is responsible for making it. Who is responsible for making the tabernacle? And third principle we see is this, that having called these men, he subsequently equips them to do the task. He gives them work, he tells them who is to do it, and he equips them to the task. Firstly, God appoints work for his people. That's not new, it's a creation ordinance. Man was made to be a working part of the creation, And what we can say is this very briefly. In the creation of the earthly tabernacle, it required human work. The labor with hands. These men, Aholiab, Bezalel, and all the able men, were to commit themselves to obedient labor. Obedient labor in the way that God called them. God called them to a certain kind of work. The second principle is this. Just as God gave the design of the tabernacle, now he tells us who will actually build the tabernacle. We see that there in verse 2 and verse 6. God says, See, I have called by name Bezalel. Verse 6. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab. And I have given to all able men ability, appointed by God, called by God. These men are selected as chosen servants by God, not by Moses, not by the people. It's not left up to a vote of the people whose work do they like the best. This is a divine calling of servants of God. Men chosen specifically by God for a specific calling. It was not open for all. God was very restrictive when he called these men by name. Called them as chosen servants of God. Yes, it was God who decided who should actually make the tabernacle. The third principle is this, having given them work, having called the ones who were to do the work, God then equipped them to do that very work. Verse 3, he's called Bezalel the son of Uri, and it says, and I have filled him with the spirit of God. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Again, verse 6, I have given to all men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. God equipped them in extraordinary fashion that they might build the tabernacle according to the command of God. Consider in these men that equipping of the Spirit. First, the equipping of the Spirit, I dare say, was in granting them wisdom. Wisdom, the language here, uh, in fact, is reminiscent of the Proverbs. That wisdom and discretion that comes through uh, instruction. They're granted wisdom. Granted wisdom to know that to deviate from the plan and command of God, would prove disaster for the people of Israel. To deviate from the revealed will of God, even in the smallest detail, would provide disaster for the children of Israel. Chapter 32 tells us that. The people of Israel sat down to worship God Aaron having made a golden calf for them, and Aaron says to them, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's not how God said he should be worshipped. God having delivered all this information to Moses and, and probably the people of Israel, what are they doing? They're setting it all aside. In their own wisdom, according to their own imagination, they're concocting an idea of the God that led them out of Egypt. Egypt. And what does God say he would do when they approach him through this manner? Verse 10 of chapter 32. Now, therefore, let me alone. He's speaking to Moses. Go away, Moses, that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Do we realize what's being said there? God is saying, I'm so angry at my people for deviating from the path of worship and approach. I will wipe them out. I will tear up the covenant I made with Abraham. I said that I would make him a great nation. I shall tear that up and I will replace him with you, Moses. I will make a great nation out of you. That's how disastrous it is, friends, to approach God essentially in your own way. You're saying to God, I can approach you in my own merits, with my own righteousness, with my own holiness. God's wrath burns against such experiences and realities. The wisdom given, the spirit gave Aholi Abed Bezalel the wisdom to know, to trust and obey God to trust him and say yes the plans given to us are good and right and we will stick to them but additionally God gave them the spirit in order that they might actually complete the task given to them that they might produce that which God had revealed not just the knowledge they must do it but God equipped them to actually do it god had left none of this to chance friends why because he doesn't leave salvation and worship to chance he's very specific very clear god simply does not leave the means of approach which after all is what the tabernacle was about god with his people his people with him and the interaction between the two how a holy god could dwell in the midst of an unholy people he just doesn't leave it to chance Salvation is bound up in this. He simply does not leave it to chance. The Spirit gave them the wisdom to follow God's command and the enabling and the empowering for them to actually do it, to make the tabernacle as God had commanded. They had to produce a perfect build to match the requirements of a perfect and a holy God. Why? Because to compromise the design of the tabernacle would have left Israel unable to approach God. Do we understand that? Unable to approach God. Turn the page through Exodus 32. Turn the pages to Leviticus 10. We've just seen in the previous chapter the instructions for the anointing oil and the incense. Nadab and Abihu came before the Lord with their own recipe of incense, strange fire, and God destroyed them. He did not give them access unto himself. He would not let them approach him in their own merits. To get the tabernacle wrong was to cut God off from his people and his people from God. Friends, had the tabernacle not been written, then these words at the end of, sorry, had the tabernacle not been designed exactly according to the plan that God commanded, then these words at the end of Exodus, the pinnacle of Exodus in a way, would never have been written. Exodus 40 verse 34, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle only because these men, by the power of the Spirit, built his dwelling place in the method and the way he had commanded. Precision was required. The Spirit enabled these men to produce an environment in which God could dwell with his people, albeit by cloud and by fire, they produced an environment in which God's people could approach him and he could dwell in their midst. Listen to what A.W. Pink has to say on this matter. He says, nothing was left to chance. No place allowed for human scheming. All is of God. Though skilled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, Moses was not left to draw the plans for Jehovah's dwelling place. Instead, he was bidden to make all things after the pattern shown him in the mount. Now that the pattern had been completely set before him, the Lord makes known who are to be the principal workmen. The choice of them was his, not Moses, and their equipment for the work was divine and not human. Friends, think on this. The three principles we've seen in the text thus far. The three principles, God appointed work for his people. God chose the people who would do the work and God equipped those people for that work. Remember that it's all about the tabernacle, Their labor is all tied to the reality of the tabernacle. We know if we go through scripture, we'll see the tabernacle concept fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We're told in John chapter 1, he tabernacled in the midst of his people. John chapter 2, he told us he is the true and everlasting temple, the real dwelling of God with men. Would we be surprised to see these three principles we've derived from the text somehow being fulfilled by Christ? I hope not. It makes sense, surely, does it not? Think on this. Just as God called Israel to work, just as he called Israel to work, so he called the true Israel, the Lord Jesus Christ, also to work. His life, friends, was a life of service and labor. How many times this morning did we hear in the preaching of the word how Jesus came to do the will of him who sent him? He came to do the will of his Father. We speak of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. What was that work? It was a life of perfect obedience by his righteous works. By his obedient works, by his labor, we are delivered. He obeyed the law where we could not. By his works, friends, we are accounted righteous before Almighty God. By his work on the cross, our sins are removed from us. We are forgiven. Yes, Jesus labored that you, dear friend, might be saved. But the second principle, just as the builders were selected by God, so scripture is clear that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, was most clearly selected by God. In fact, he's called in the prophets the servant of the Lord. Many servants, but only one true servant of the Lord, picked, appointed, chosen, and yes, anointed, to which we'll come in a moment. Friends, there were many false prophets, many false priests, many false kings and messiahs arose. But Jesus of Nazareth, chosen by God, is the true servant of God in order that he might bring about our salvation. And yes, just as he was chosen by God to do the will of him who sent him, thirdly, he was also equipped. By God. Just as Aholiab and Bezalel were equipped with the Spirit, spirit we read too of our Lord Jesus Christ at his baptism receiving the fullness of the Spirit of God. Receiving the fullness of the Spirit that he might conduct his ministry according to the pattern that had been revealed unto him. He was busy with obedience. He did what God called him to do. He's the very fullness of the concept of God's dwelling place. And he did it well. He did it perfectly. Friends, ask yourself: why is it important to see Jesus in this text? Well, because he's there. He's just there. And if he's there, if scripture requires us to see our Lord in this text that must tell us that it is something about Jesus worth believing or even necessary believing. If we don't have this Jesus, we have the wrong Jesus. If you have a Jesus of your own imaginations, a Jesus that pleases you, Essentially does your bidding in one way or another. If it's not the biblical Jesus, you've got the wrong Jesus. And you've got no salvation. These things are essential for us to believe. His work, his calling and selection, his choice by God, his equipping to that very end are essential. That we have the right Jesus and thus we have salvation But salvation in Christ is not just a product of his work. We also see the effect of salvation, the effect of Christ's work in providing rest. And the Sabbath legislation here in verse 12 following is a picture of that rest that Christ provides us. And here we see God in verse 12 providing his people with rest. Providing his people with rest. Note how, in the words of God, the Sabbath was enormously important to the people of Israel. And I want to say it remains enormously important for us also. Look at verse 13. The Lord tells Moses, he's going to go and speak to the people of Israel these words. And the first words he says to him about the Sabbath, he says, are these Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. God's not creating some sort of two-tier law system here where he's saying, well, the other ones aren't quite so important, you know, adultery and and theft. You, You can do them. No, no. He's saying you're absolutely to keep those. But above all, above all, keep my Sabbaths. In the context of the building of the tabernacle, Everything that was to go into it, all the curtains, the poles, the ark, the priests, the sacrifices, God says to his people, above all, keep my Sabbaths. Friends, I want to say to you, the Sabbath is not abrogated under the new covenant. We have a new name for it in the new covenant. It's called the Lord's Day because of of the understanding we have in Christ. But Christ himself reaffirms Sabbath legislation in his own observance of the Sabbath and in his own teaching and command, Luke chapter 6. What we have before us here in this text has some peculiar old covenant color to the Sabbath legislation. There are changes to the new covenant, but the Sabbath principle is not abrogated. There remains for us a Sabbath. And the Sabbath regulations here we have before us are a repetition, but also an expansion of what we've previously had in Exodus 20. Isn't that interesting? I think I'm right in saying this, but no other law is repeated in Exodus more frequently than the Sabbath. It's there in Exodus 20, it's here in Exodus 31. We're going to see it repeated again in Exodus 35. That doesn't happen with any of the other commandments in the book of Exodus. The Sabbath is emphasized, selected by God for peculiar emphasis. We note five things, and I'm brief on each one of these, I hope. Five things from this text which speak to us of the, the vital importance that the Sabbath is And should be to each one of us. I know it's late and we're tired and it's warm. Let's stay with it. This is really very important. Vitally important to our faith. The first thing we see is the preeminence of the Sabbath. Verse 13. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Because it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. That you may know that I, the Lord, Lord, sanctify you. The Sabbath was to be kept above all because by it, the children of Israel knew that the Lord was about their holiness. It was a sign between him and them that he was absolutely and ultimately committed to their holiness. This is God's word. It's not our interpretation. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. Why? Because there was a sacramental idea to the Sabbath. It's not a sacrament, but it's like a sacrament. A sacrament is a a visible sign with a spiritual meaning attached to it. That's what God says the Sabbath is. It's a sign between you and between God that God is committed to making you holy. Holy. Every Lord's Day as you come into the Lord's house, you are to be reminded of these words. This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Dear Christian, look unto the Sabbath day as a day whereby you are being sanctified. As God's weekly commitment, He'll call it a covenant down at the end of this chapter. God's covenant to you to make you holy. This is a blessed day, a day of holiness for you, where God takes you away from the world and blesses you with Himself. Friends, do you want proof? That God has a vital and covenantal interest in you, your holiness, and your perseverance in faith. Think highly of the Sabbath. Delight yourself in the Lord's day. The second reason for keeping the Sabbath is that it is an holy day, verse 14. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. It is holy for you. What does holiness mean? Holiness means to be set apart, to be devoted unto the Lord. Okay, the the Sabbath day is a holy day set apart from the other six, devoted unto the Lord. God's holiness, in a sense, is his self-devotion. Yes, it means he's sinless. Yes, it means he's transcendent. Yes, it means he's set apart, but he's ultimately devoted unto himself. That's what the Sabbath day is to be for you, dear Christian, a day devoted to God's holy purposes. The character of this day is very different to the character of the previous six. It's to look different for you. And that holiness is comprised in the original commandment of do's and don'ts. Do keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day positively, to keep it holy. Devote the day to worship and rest. Yes, get your Sunday afternoon nap so that it allows you to come back to church Sunday night. A day devoted to the Lord. We're not going to do things on this day unless we're forced to by necessity or mercy, which detract from our relationship with God, detract from us being here morning and evening to devote ourselves to the Lord. Yes, do keep it holy, says God. On the other hand, he says, don't work. Don't work. Unless your work, your employment, is in works of necessity or mercy, don't do work. It's very simple. In it, you shall do no work. No work. Children, not schoolwork. Remember, we've confessed you're to dispose of your six-day labors before you get to the Lord's Day. Do no work. And don't make other people work for you by engaging in commerce or by going out to eat. Devote the Lord's Day to holy purposes. Note thirdly, the penalty, verses 14 and 15 of Sabbath-breaking. The penalty, and here's some peculiar old covenant color. We have to admit that. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. That shows us how seriously God takes the Sabbath. Now, we're not about putting people to death because they don't keep the Sabbath. We don't do that anymore. But there is an equivalent in the church of this death penalty We see this in the book of Corinthians. Those who would be cut off from their people in the old covenant are excommunicated in the new covenant. That's the equivalent, not physically being put to death, being put to spiritual death. However we parse this out in our own culture, notice how serious God takes the Sabbath. You profane the Sabbath by work, you're dead. Or you shall be cut off from among the people, excommunicated cast out of the covenant people this is how serious the lord took breaches of the sabbath law notice fourthly the perpetual nature of the sabbath verse 16 therefore the people of israel shall keep the sabbath observing the sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever It's remarkable language, that is, friends. Notice the generational and covenantal nature of the Sabbath or the Lord's day. Just as God made a covenant with Abraham and his generations after him, here God is saying the same thing in in the same manner, a covenant with you and your generations, that's what's being said, it's a covenant forever. God is saying the same thing about the Sabbath. That's pretty amazing. That God has given us this one day in seven, holy set apart, devoted under him, to be to us a sign, verse 14, to be to us a covenant, verse 16. In the Sabbath and in God's presence, God shows forth his commitment to us in a manner that is not replicated anywhere else in life god shows forth his commitment to us on the sabbath in a manner that he does so nowhere else it is to be a covenant to us throughout our generations i've said it's almost sacramental observe the sabbath Keep the Sabbath. Think on the Sabbath. Why? Because there's great blessings attached to it. There's a, it's a sign. This day is a sign of our eternal rest. It's a sign of God's commitment to us. Friends, think on this as you celebrate and observe <clears throat> and enjoy this Sabbath. Today, God has reconfirmed with you, dear Christian, his commitment to saving you and preserving you and making you holy. What a blessed day! What a blessed day this is that God should reveal himself to you and to you and to you, dear friend, his commitment his unfathomable, unbreakable commitment to you, his love for you, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. What's God saying? That the Lord himself is devoting you to his peculiar use and glory. That's remarkable. That's remarkable what God is doing on this day. And fifthly, and lastly, on this note, the symbolic nature of the Sabbath, verse 17. You'll notice that the passage starts with, for this is a sign between me and you. And it concludes with the words, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed a sign. A sign in verse 13 that God's going to make you holy. A sign in verse 17 that God made the heavens and earth in six days and rested on the seventh and was refreshed. Now what in the world do we make of that phrase, and was refreshed? It's not as if God was weak or tired or he needed his Sunday afternoon nap. Uh, He didn't need to recharge his batteries, did he? Of course not. That's folly. What then does it mean that God was refreshed on his day of rest? Well, we call this an anthropomorphism. It's a way of expressing a truth about God in human terms so we can understand something about God that otherwise we could not understand. Uh, Human activities, emotions, needs are attributed to God when he doesn't rightly have them in order that we might understand some truth, what truth is being conveyed to us when it said, God rest rested and was refreshed? I think it means this. When we when we look at what Scripture itself says about that seventh day, I think we understand what is being said here. The first thing is this: God finished his creation work on the sixth day. And he rested from his creation work. He continued a work of providence, but He rested from that work and set apart the day, different use. Second, he looked at his creation and he saw what? That it was all very good. Good in quality, good in design, good in purpose. The third thing we learn in Genesis 2-3 is that he blessed the day and made it holy. How could we summarize all this? One theologian says God had total satisfaction on the seventh day. Complete satisfaction with, as it were, the work of his hands. And friends, that points us really to the same goal, rest and refreshment on this day is not compromised in us playing football or golf or fishing or gardening or whatever we do for rest on those other days. Satisfaction, satisfaction here is a spiritual reality, a deeply spiritual reality. Satisfaction, friends, in our core function, our fundamental function, our core purpose, our core delight. What is it? Worship. It's got to be. It's got to be. If there's something we love better than worship, we need to go back to the drawing board. Worship. This day ought to be the most satisfying day of the week. I was speaking to two of you last week, and what what these people said, filled my heart with joy that the Lord's Day was the happiest day of the week for them. And it hadn't been in their past. But now the Lord was blessing them so richly. They were satisfied being in God's house with God's beloved people, singing God's praises It's our core function. This is what we were made for. Satisfaction on the Lord's day. Friends, work and rest both by divine appointment. Work and rest for us with the utmost satisfaction at the end. We can say this, without the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no satisfaction in your life. If you're here tonight without the Lord Jesus Christ, everything we've said is wildly irrelevant to you. Because you're not here with faith in Christ. And God here today is not meeting with you as friend and father and and redeemer. He's meeting with you as judge. And we urge upon any here present, old or young, it matters not. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And this day shall be a day of rest. And all your life shall be resting in the Savior because that 's ultimately to what this pattern of work and rest point us to a beautiful picture of the Savior, a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ, the worker, the faithful servant, the one obedient in his labor, the worker of righteousness, even on the cross he was working righteousness, suffering for our sins. Think on this by his work, your sins have been removed. And you've been granted a righteousness which fulfills the very law of God. That's staggering. And in that, dear friends, he's given us rest. Has he not given us rest? Rest from our labors whereby we attempt to find meaning in this life without God. Rest from our labors where we seek to justify ourselves before God. He's given us rest from this. Why? Because his righteousness, as I just said, fulfills the righteous requirement of the law of God. And his his labor has been imputed unto us, received by faith. So that, friend, if you're a Christian here today, you are no less righteous than the Lord Jesus Christ. Whose righteousness you have, rest in it. You don't have to earn your way into God's good books. You're already there. He already loves you. You don't have to work your way into that love. It's impossible to do anyway. That's the true rest. That by faith we receive Christ and all his blessings. By faith. And the Sabbath. Sabbath. The Lord's Day today is now what? It's the first day of the week. The Jewish Sabbath was the last day of the week. Work, 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 rest. Now what's happened? It's been reversed. The first day of your week this week, dear friends, is this the blessed Sabbath day where you have been filled once again with the goodness of God Almighty who is for you and with you. And now you are equipped by this day to go out into the world and to work, to work on behalf of Almighty God so that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whether you witness or work, you now as a Christian do it all to the glory of God the rest of this day. What's happening now, what hopefully has been happening all day long, God has revealed to you, dear Christian, once again, his sign of his utmost unbreakable commitment to you. And to your children after you. The generations that come after you. God has given us a covenant Sabbath every seven days to remind you of this. How good and pleasant it is. How good and pleasant it is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. We give you all praise and honor and glory. Our great and mighty God. How we worship you. You are most excellent and your ways are most excellent. Help us to delight in this day. Be glorified, Lord God, by us, your people, Be glorified throughout the world. Build up your church. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, come quickly, we pray. Come quickly. We ask this in your name. Amen.